Hello, I'm Andrew Gentile. And I'm Ariana. And you're listening to Behind the Flicks. This show is all about me sharing as many facts as I know about filmmaking and directors and behind-the-scenes info about movies and whatnot to Ariana, and you'll join us for the ride. This episode's guest is a film critic, historian, professor, and former screenwriter whose work has been praised by the likes of Pierre Bogdanovich and Martin Scorsese. He is here to discuss the revised and expanded version of the book he co-authored, a critical analysis of legendary film director John Ford. We're thrilled to have Joseph McBride back on this program. Joe, how are you? Great to be with you, Ariana and Andrew. It's always good to talk to you uh, folks, and it's it's good to talk about John Ford. Yeah. Oh, I 100% agree. Mm-hmm. Um, Great to learn about John Ford. Yeah, I was just uh, talking to somebody else about Ford, and the guy said, what a character. And uh, that's, that's a good way to start with John Ford. <laughs> so as I'm sure you're aware, Joe, each episode, Ariana and I discuss a single film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we dive into Ariana's review of Seven Women, mm. let's talk about your book. Great. Um, what made you want to collaborate with another author on this critical study? Well, I was quite young when uh, we did this book, Michael Wilmington and I. Um, he's He died last year, unfortunately. Um, he was a friend of mine from University of Wisconsin-Madison. We were both students, and uh, we lived in the same rooming house for a while and hung out. And I ran the Wisconsin Film Society, which was the official film society until we got booted out of that capacity because... It's a long story, but Stuart Gordon, the theater director who became a film director, did a nude version of Peter Pan that caused a big scandal on campus. And they were, <laughs> they were the DA in the university wouldn't let them put it on a second time in the um, theater in the student union. So I said, come on up to our classroom where we're showing Buster Keaton movies and if our crowd votes to show your play instead we'll show your play and Mike Wilmington played John in the play and he was not naked by the way (laughs) but uh, it was quite a wonderful production and Stuart I I just read Stuart did a autobiography before he died and there's a whole two chapters on Peter Pan and that's interesting to read about Um, uh, anyway but Mike and I were pals and uh, I, I had written a book on Orson Welles. Actually, it was pretty well finished, but it didn't come out till 1972. I started in um, 67 on the Welles book and finished in, well, it, it I was pretty well finished within about three years, but then I added a chapter on the other side of the wind because Welles put me in that film. Um, but I, I had done a book before that even in, um, when I was a kid, I did a book on baseball slang called High and Inside, an A to Z Guide to the Language of Baseball. That's how I taught myself how to write a book. And that was my obsession when I was uh, an adolescent and teenager was baseball. So that book kept me out of trouble for three years. And uh, I edited a collection of um, uh, essays that our film society people wrote on films. It was called Persistence of Vision a collection of film criticism and Mike contributed to that. And all that preceded the John Ford book. Uh, And the reason, you know, the reason I asked him to collaborate was I just thought Ford was a huge subject to write about. And I was, uh, gosh, we started in 1969. I would have been 22 and, you know, I was pretty young and uh, Ford covered a vast range of work, but also subject matter, you know, 
American history, world history, um, cultures, different cultures from our own, um, you know, a, a, a tremendous subject. And I thought, well, I kind of need a collaborator to help me on this. It's too big a job for one person. So I thought, hey, well, I'll ask Mike about it. And uh, we had long talks all the time about films. We were, uh, we'd go to films and talk about them. And um, he was an actor primarily at that time. And I directed him in the zoo story twice, the Edward Albee one-act play, and Mike was brilliant in that play. We had two different guys playing opposite him. It's a two-character play. And uh, so I, a lot of what I know about acting, I learned from Mike, uh, because he was not only a fine actor, but he could analyze acting really well. And he understood the difference between stage acting and film acting, which I, I think most people don't do. You know, they confuse the two, and there's a lot of you know misapprehension about film acting as a result and that's why a lot of people think john wayne's not an actor because he quote plays himself and that's just a total misunderstanding of what a star is who do you expect a star to play except himself or herself and and i, I asked john wayne when i interviewed him um what do you say to people who say you play yourself and he said well it's obviously impossible to do that he said if you play yourself on screen you'll be the dullest son of a bitch who ever walked across the screen he said he said you have to create yourself you have to create a persona and he was very smart very articulate about it he created this character called john wayne um and uh, you know perfected this distinctive walk and way of talking and mannerisms and um and with ford's help and other directors, Raul Walsh and Howard Hawks, especially. And um, he, um, you know, we talked about that. And uh, anyway, so um, Mike and I, uh, we would, um, Mike and I started on this book in 1969, and we finished in 1971. And we sold it to the British Film Institute. Um, my Orson Welles, the first, I've done three on Welles, but um, they had a fine series called the Cinema One series that were, mono, well, short short books on mostly major directors, sometimes on genres. And back then, film history and film studies were in their infancy, and so there was a need for books on all the great filmmakers. And so I did the one on Welles, and it was published in 72, but they had already accepted it. And um, I'm I'm not sure why that one took a while to come out. I, I guess. have a question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you collaborate with anyone when you were doing Wells's books? No. Can I ask why? Because you said one of the reasons why you want to collaborate because John Ford is such a massive subject that covered a lot of, you know, different subjects. Mm -hmm. Why, uh, in your opinion, is John Ford like a bigger, even bigger project than Orson Welles, at least in how you Yeah. I mean, Wells, first of all, the volume of, Ford's work. I think I was thinking as much about volume as anything else. Ford directed, I believe, 136 films, including 25 short films. Wow. Nobody will ever have that kind of career again. It's impossible today. It takes directors a long time to get a film put together because the old studio system is basically gone. Yeah. And even really good directors, either it takes three, four years to make the film or it takes that long to get the money to make the film. And, you know, the deal making the deal is a big part of it. And, but back then, you know, the studios had a, a system with screenwriters and people under contract actors and technicians and, and uh, Ford 
prided himself on being a journeyman director. Uh, he called it just a job of work. And in a way that was sort of a pose. He didn't want to run around saying I'm an artist, which would have been fatal to his career at that point. Because in Hollywood then, if you said you're an artist, you'd be killed like Joseph von Sternberg, Eric von Stroheim and Orson Welles and John Renoir, examples of people who were unabashedly artists and their careers were, uh, Hollywood careers were destroyed at some point. And, uh, but Ford kept going. And the price of that is he made some routine films and uh, you know, the scripts varied in quality, but every third or fourth film was terrific. And even the weaker Ford films always had some good material in them um but he made some bad films along the way but um anyway he had this vast career uh wells uh, had 12 features released in his lifetime he died at the age of 70 stanley kubrick had exactly the same number 12 features released in his lifetime and he died at 70 which is strange but the difference is that kubrick had the backing of a major studio warner brothers because his films made money usually wells's films didn't make money but Wells did a lot of work, which uh, keeps coming out or that people still haven't seen. You know, I've seen almost everything he did, but I have I've had to go to archives to see a lot of it. Um, but I, I, I do think, that, I mean, Wells, you make a good point because Wells certainly covered intellectually a lot of territory um, and a wide range of um, history and other things in his films and cultures. But not not on the scale of Ford. Ford was gigantic. Mm. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I had to become an expert on, or kind of an expert on World War One and Two and the Civil War and um, Vietnam and, you know, all kinds of things with Ford. Uh, with Spielberg, when I did a biography of him, that was kind of fun because, I mean, one reason it's fun to do a biography is you have to study these other fields. And I, I like the opportunity to do that. With Spielberg, I had to learn about dinosaurs and sharks and the Holocaust and, uh, you know, other subjects that obsess him, uh, uh, aliens, you know, I had to read a lot of books on aliens, you know, uh, some were good and some were kind of goofy, but, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a way of studying that you get paid to study and that's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. um, so with Ford, I've had to, you know, but it became a lifelong study for me. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, the, to make a long story short, we spent about uh, two years on that and finished it. And then it, it sat in London for three years uh, before it got published. The British Film Institute had a series called Cinema 2, which were kind of, I guess, slightly bigger versions of the Cinema 1 series. And they didn't publish it. And today I wouldn't put up with that. I, you know, I, I would have demanding it back or something but uh i kept asking when is this coming out and i would get these non-committal responses and ford died in 1973 and i wanted the book to come out during his lifetime but it, it didn't so i got on plane and went to london and just walked into their office secker and warburg was the publisher uh, old publishing company and demanded to see the boss and i was ushered in to see the publisher they were really shocked that oh McBride is here. What's going on? And I said, I want the book back. You know, uh, you guys are not publishing this book. I want it back. And um, he, his excuse was they, they couldn't find an American publisher for it. And that wasn't part of the deal. You know, they were just obligated to publish it. And I said, I want it back. And he said, well, we'll find an American publisher. And they found one real fast. So it came out in 74. That's a long story. But that, these are the 
trials and tribulations of new authors, you know. So um, it came out in 74, and then um, it, it was in print for a long time, and then it went out of print in America and England, and um, there were some uh, foreign editions as well. My, I wrote a biography searching for John Ford in 2001. That took about 30 years. Actually, when I finished writing John Ford, I thought, well, there's biography is needed because we don't understand how these beautiful, sensitive, poetic films came out of this gruff character who wouldn't talk about his work, et cetera. And it was kind of a mystery to everybody. And uh, Ford made it that way. And so I started work on a biography and um, I worked on it off and on, obviously. Uh, I did many other books and worked on variety, et cetera, and was a screenwriter. But I kept doing research and interviews. And finally, the book came out in 2001, Searching for John Ford. And then I began thinking, well, I want to get John Ford back into print. And I, I put in four addenda. Um, I, I wrote three essays on things that are still controversial about Ford. One is uh, his view of race. Another is his Irishness, which is a big thing in his films. Another is his use of comedy, which is actually the these are the complaints you hear if people don't like Ford, they often say, I don't like his comedy, you know, people knocking each other around and blah, 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 blah. So I wrote about why I think his comedy is integral to his work. And then I did a, uh, an ambitious new uh, essay on his silent years, because when the first edition came out, there were only about 12 silent Ford films that we knew that existed. And out of about 72, and we thought that's too small a number to write about so we just wrote about the first feature he did, Straight Shooting, 1917. But now there are 27 Ford films, Silence, that are known to exist in whole or in part. So it's enough to kind of reconstruct the silent years. And I also had the benefit of um, the research of Steve Mayhew, who, who wrote a PhD thesis in England uh, on John Ford's silent work. And I helped Steve with, you know, whatever I could. And we, we traded copies of Ford films that we had that the other guy didn't have. And uh, that's what I think scholars should do with each other. And his, his research was wonderful. And he, he, uh, the films that don't exist, uh, or that we, you know, don't know where they are. Um, he, he looked up all the reviews and, uh, articles and things, and he was able to talk about what they were about. And he had anecdotes and, and, uh, photographic evidence of these films. And, I had read the scripts of some of the missing films also in Ford's papers and things like that. So I was able to kind of have an overview for the first time of Ford's silent years, which really interested me. So anyway, the book finally came out um, uh, this year from University Press of Kentucky. And uh, so that's that's the long story, but I didn't go into the history of the collaboration if you want to ask about that. I do. As somebody who considers himself a writer, um, I'm always interested in how collaboration works. Could you describe your collaborations with uh, Mr. Willington? Yeah, he was a, a fine writer, um, primarily a, an actor, but he, he was a good writer. And um, uh, in our film society, he would introduce films and I would introduce films. And he was just great. He'd get up and give a very impassioned five-minute talk about some film or something. I remember we had a... Uh, film committee to pick films for the student union too in 35 millimeter and we were always trying to get the searchers through and uh, the the group of people a lot of them were left-wing uh john luke goddard fans who hated john wayne because of the vietnam war and it was a hard sell to get 
the searches in, but we got it in. But uh, somehow Mike persuaded them to show El Dorado, the Hawks film with John Wayne. And he, he gave a 15-minute talk, and he was so impassioned, he was weeping by the end of the talk. And people wow. were so stunned. They said, okay, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll vote for El Dorado. You know, I never forgot that. But um, <laughs> it was a very passionate time. Everybody was arguing about films all the time in, in a good way, you know. And um, so Mike and I had long, long talks when we were uh, talking about this book, and we all we both benefited from you know sharpening each other's views on on all these different films. It was uh, one thing your your listeners will find very interesting. Uh, it was very different from today. Uh, it was hard to see these films. You had to rent them in sixteen millimeter, which you know we didn't have any money. But I, since I ran a film society. I would make a profit by showing, say, a Fellini or Bergman film that would draw 600 people, and then I'd have enough money to show John Ford's Wagon Master, which I showed on a double bill with Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. I wanted the most optimistic film and the most pessimistic film. <laughs> I, I like to do perverse double bills. But so I had the money, a little bit of money I could bring Ford films, and then there were other film societies that would uh, bring Ford films, and they would loan them to me, and and then they would appear on TV and we would see them. Sometimes we had to uh, take a bus to Milwaukee or someplace to see it on TV. We, we had to go on the Greyhound bus to Chicago to see the searchers at the uh, Clark Theater, which showed uh, uh, older films. It was a great theater in the loop. And um, that was a great experience. We saw the beautiful 35 millimeter print. And uh, then we eventually got it. This is a funny story I can't resist. We, the Union Film Committee, we talked them into showing The Searchers, and um, the weekend that it was supposed to play, Nixon announced that we were, we had invaded Cambodia, and we were bombing Cambodia, you know, which was a, a war crime, totally illegal, and uh, so the students rioted as they did every once in a while, and the National Guard took over the campus, and they oh. ring, they ring the student union. You could get into the student union, but you had to walk through this uh, gantlet of these National Guardsmen, which I did, but almost nobody went in to see the film. And so a year later, I said, you know, why don't we show the searchers again, because nobody got to see it. So they said, okay, sure. But for some stupid reason, we, we showed it the same weekend a year later. Oh, and gosh. The, the students had a riot to commemorate the previous riot. Oh. And the, the National Guard took over the campus again, and nobody saw the film. So I developed the theory that the searchers was causing this, these riots to take place. I called it the annual searchers riot. There's something about this film that deals with the evil of racism that provoked violence. You know, I'm, I'm kidding, but it's, yeah, it felt, it felt that way. You know, um, yeah. So anyway, Mike and I would talk and talk and talk, and then. I kind of assigned, uh, well, I did, I assigned certain films to him and certain films to me. And um, and uh, we wrote the introduction together. We traded drafts back and forth. And and um, after a while, um, with Mike's consent, I did the final draft. He would do several drafts. And, um, you know, sometimes he would, he, typically he would rewrite, I, I would, read his draft and i'd say well this part is terrific but this part needs work and this part is good and you know how come you didn't mention this and this and whatever you know and um so then he turned in another draft but the good stuff would be gone and then the the, 
the weak stuff would be improved, but I'd say, where's the good stuff? You know, the, they had this great chapter, uh, great uh, paragraph on such and such. And, oh, yeah, I didn't put that in. And anyway, he would do like five, <laughs> five drafts of each chapter. And so with his consent, I was good at finishing things. And I, I, I rewrote all his uh, drafts and I wrote my drafts and, and um, polished them up. And uh, But I can tell when I, I'm reading the book again. Oh yeah, that's Wilmington's insight. You know, uh, sometimes I can't tell because it's been rewritten so much. But he had some wonderful, wonderful, profound insights into Ford and acting, and but also into the historical themes and the political themes and all kinds of stuff. And and so it was a, a good collaboration. But I finished it, and um, we got then we sold it, and it wasn't too hard to sell because the for the Wells book had been well received. Uh, Actually, I heard it was the best seller in the Cinema One series. Oh wow! I never got a penny in royalties, but, and we oh never we never got any money in royalties from the Ford book either. And so, like twenty, uh, I, then I spent twenty two years um, getting those two books back. You know, you, you can get a book reverted to you if the publisher is not keeping it in print or whatever, and. I just wanted them back so I could sell them to new publishers. It took 22 years of arguing with them and um, they, they wound up, um, you know, reverting them. And then I, so, but this one sat around for a few years before we sold it. So, you know, uh, collaboration is a complicated process, but it, it's a better book. I also felt, I guess, you know, when Ariana is asking that, it makes me think, I think two viewpoints are good. You know, it's like a stereo, stereoscopic vision you know you see out of two eyes somewhat differently but they combine into one vision and ford is so deep and profound that i felt maybe i wasn't mature enough to see him in his totality but by combining my insights with mike's we we, we managed to see him pretty clearly i think you know um but i think it took two two heads instead of one i guess is the short answer you know? yeah yeah that's wonderful it, it's beautiful to have um somebody of your your intellect your your willingness to study your knowledge base to be humble enough to say you know i want more ideas i want to be able to look at things from other perspectives i want more input and um that that's a wonderful example because i'm sure it was a, a better book for having more ideas in there yeah it, it really is unusual i haven't collaborated on another uh, book i've collaborated on tv shows and films that's a whole different area mm -hmm. uh, george stevens jr the producer of the american film institute life achievement award shows um, he and i collaborated on the scripts of five of those shows and that was a different kind of process but uh that worked out well you know but books i've since then all the books i've done have been solo efforts you know mm -hmm. but when you're 22, doing a book on Ford. When I interviewed Ford, um, he he um, he said to me, "How old are you?" And I said, "22." I actually I had turned 23, but I was kind of rattled by him, you know. So I said, "22," and he's 22, and you've written a book, you know. I told him about the Wells book, and I said, "Well, you were 22 when you directed your first film," and he kind of, <laughs> "Oh, yeah, well, okay, you know." Uh, <laughs> But uh, that was nice of him to say that, you know, but yeah. it, was, it was a strong, it was a challenge, you know, to approach this man who is our greatest national poet, along with, I'd say, Walt Whitman, you'd have to put those two up there. Wow.
And let's go back to the the interview you conducted with Ford. Uh, I wanted, I did want to ask. I don't want to reveal too much about the book for this because listeners, you need to purchase this book. Um, but could you give us a little insight into what made this particular interview special in the yeah. context of Ford's career? Yeah, it was my first interview in Hollywood. Can you imagine uh, John Ford? Wow. The greatest filmmaker of all time. I still feel that. Um, but also probably one of the most difficult people to interview. I've interviewed, I, I estimated a few years ago, how many people have I interviewed in my career as a journalist and biographer? And I, I estimated about 15,000. Wow. Well, you know, when you're on a newspaper, sometimes you interview several people a day. And I did that for years. And, but, um, you know, on biographies, I interview um, hundreds of people, et cetera. But I'd say the two hardest interviews I had of, in the film world were Ford and Godard. Godard was maybe even harder because he was such a jerk. <laughs> he was really uncooperative and and um, hostile for whatever reason, you know, I tried to interview him. But Ford, Ford was uh, cranky and cantankerous, which he was with everybody, but he would say some cogent things every once in a while, but then he would play games with me. He would pretend not to remember some of his films, which kind of flabbergasted me. Like I thought, is he going senile or what? You know, he, complained <laughs> he, he didn't remember what Ford Apache was and I had to explain it to him. And um, he, and then he would not say something about it. He said, well, that's all right. Or, you know, I asked about the searchers. He said, well, I made a lot of money and that's the ultimate end, you know? And I thought, geez, is that all he's going to say about this great film uh mm -hmm. but he also made me sit on his um deaf ear side he had, <laughs> he had uh i guess his his left ear was bad and uh although one of his associates said you know ford couldn't see and he couldn't hear but he always knew exactly what was going on around the set i mean <laughs> he, he partly exaggerated this so he could listen to people sometimes he'd even pretend to be drunk so you know when if you're drunk, people say things that they think you're not, you know, capable of understanding. And then he would hold it against the person the next day, what they said about him when he was drunk, you know. But so I was sitting on Ford's deaf side. So he would made me make me shout questions sometimes, which is really embarrassing. By the third or fourth time you ask a question, you wish you hadn't asked it, you know, asked it is just awful. Um, and then he would be a long pause. He'd say, well, I don't know. Or, you know, anyway, next question. Or you know, like, <laughs> it, it was really hard. But I found out, but I would say that he came out with a lot of interesting insights and, and thoughts in, in the midst of all this nonsense. And, um, you know, I answered some questions. And I got really stubborn after a while. Uh, he was trying to kind of shoo me away after a while. Um, and I, I realized there was something going on that I didn't know at the time. He kept saying to his secretary, who was a very nice lady, um, has the Italian gentleman called, the gentleman from Italy, has he called? You know, And she kept saying, no, Mr. Ford, he hasn't called. And I didn't know what the heck was going on. And then um, toward the end of our interview, Ford announced his retirement. And uh, I said, I'm sorry if I asked some stupid questions. And uh, he said, well, it's not that, but he said, all you people, you always ask the same questions, and I don't know how to answer them. And he said, I'm just a hard-nosed, hard-working, and then there was a long pause, and he said, ex-director. 
and I'm trying to retire gracefully. And I was very moved by that pause that he paused. And then he said he's an ex-director. He had never said that before. He's announcing his retirement while we're sitting here. I thought, wow, I hope I didn't cause him to retire. <laughs> but um, he only gave one more interview to some guy, you know, later in his life. Um, but when I did my biography, I went to Indiana University in Bloomington where they have Ford's papers. And I looked up, you know, the correspondence for that period. And found out what was going on. Woody Strode, his friend and actor who was in Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and other films, uh, Sergeant Rutledge, had become a star in Italian Westerns like Clint Eastwood had done and other American actors. And Woody Strode, if Ford hadn't been able to make a film in Hollywood since Seven Women in 1965, which was a great film. We'll talk about that later, but it, um, didn't do well with the critics in America or the other audience. Uh, MGM basically dumped the film. We could talk about that. And um, it did well overseas. People uh, understood it better. But, you know, when you have a flop in Hollywood and you're old, you don't, they, they don't want to let you direct stuff. They, they canceled the project that he was planning at MGM because of Seven Women. And uh, so he hadn't been able to make a film for five years, which I thought was a horrible scandal, uh, our greatest filmmaker. And he had projects. He had done a couple documentaries <laughs> in that period, but he had some feature projects. But anyway, in, in the papers, it said Woody Strode was talking to an Italian producer about Ford doing a spaghetti Western, you know, an Italian Western. And this guy was supposedly interested and Ford had some projects. I'm not sure which of his stories they were going to do, but um, the man was supposed to be calling Ford and he didn't call. And that day, you know, Ford kind of realized this guy's not going to call and he's not writing. So the project is dead. It never happened. So he was accepting the reality at that point, his career is over. And I, I arrived with, bizarre timing on the day that his career was ending yeah no wonder he was in a bad mood i mean the last thing he wanted to do was have some kid asking him about his old movies you know i mean like his he he, some, he said a couple times in the interview like you know mac i gotta i gotta get off the thing because you know i'm waiting for this phone call and you know i got work to do and i got kind of stubborn because he was being difficult and i thought i'll never probably interview him again so I just kept pl plugging away with questions. I can be very stubborn if, <laughs> if I want to. And um, one time his secretary came in and, uh, you know, asked some question. It's kind of like she was sort of giving him an, an out to end the interview. But another time she came in and asked us if we wanted more coffee. And I said, sure. And the Ford looked kind of disappointed because that extends the interview, you know. But anyway, finally he ended it, but he said, God bless you, and uh, Aaron Gobra, which means Ireland forever, and he gave me an Irish blessing, and, you know, it's a very, very nice uh, ending, and I, I, Persistence of Vision, the book I mentioned, was dedicated to Ford, and I gave him a copy, and he held it up like this, um, right next to his eye, because he couldn't see very well, and he saw the dedication, he said, oh, that's sweet, and I thought, well, that's nice, you know. Um, I got Goddard certainly didn't say, "Oh, that's sweet" about anything, <laughs> you know. So anyway, that was the interview. But I published part of it in Sight and Sound. I was kind of embarrassed by it. I mean, frankly, you know, I was green and uh, I'd interviewed people before, but never. Um, I guess I'd never interviewed film film directors before, 
and so I was and I was nervous because here was John Ford you know this great director and I was he was in a bad mood and and uh so I was I asked some dumb questions at one point he said cry for Christ's sake Mac these are stupid questions uh you know and uh, he was right <laughs> so it was embarrassing so I just printed sort of parts of it in sight and sound uh, along with an interview I did that afternoon with Jean Renoir. And I, I, I met my three favorite directors that week, Jean Renoir, John Ford, and Orson Welles, all in one week. And oh by, the end of the week by the end of the week, I was acting in a Welles film, which is bizarre. And I met Peter Bogdanovich that week, too. And um, um, I also contacted Hitchcock's office, and he had, he had called my hotel and said, yeah, uh, call us and come on over. And the hotel didn't give me the message until I was checking out. Wow. So I could have met Hitchcock. <laughs> wow. I kind of thought this every week in Hollywood will be like this, but I I didn't realize this was the pinnacle. It's all been downhill ever since, you know. <laughs> oh. oh, actually, to answer your question, Andrew, uh, one thing I did with this new edition was to to run virtually the entire transcript of the interview, uh, good, bad and ugly parts, you know. Um, to give a flavor of what it was like to sit with Ford for uh, uh, an hour or so, you know, and um, uh, all the parts where he didn't answer questions are in there. And it's it's funny. It's it's kind of people tell me my son read this. And he said, I like Ford because he's a badass. And I hadn't thought of him like that. But that's kind of true. <laughs> but from the, the the young kid's point of view, Ford is a badass. You know, it's good. <laughs> It, it 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 certainly it paints a scene with words uh what what you wrote of this youthful reporter who and interviewing <laughs> the the tough gruff uh film director uh who who's snappish you know it paints such a scene yeah i said it was interviewing ford was like squatting beside a campfire with the earp brothers and drinking coffee out of a tin cup while you're asking him questions about the clantons or something you know uh, it was kind of like that. Ford, Ford cultivated this gruff image because he, he really didn't want to answer uh, uh, questions from about his films. Um, it's interesting. I, I was just interviewed in a documentary about Ford's World War II service, a French French documentary, and um, there were two interviews that where Ford was remarkably outgoing and. Um, uh, one was about the Battle of Midway. He was there photographing it. He made a great film called The Battle of Midway. And uh, he did an oral history with the Navy during the war, which is very uh, detailed and, and very, you know, expansive. And then he did one on his filming of the D-Day landings. He was there on June 6, 1944, wow. coordinated all the naval uh, photography of the landings, uh, hundreds of photographers. And, uh, well, not hundreds of, he had hundreds of cameras, but he had a lot of photographers, but he had some cameras that were automated on boats and things like that. But um, he gave a long interview to the American Legion magazine in 1964 about filming D-Day, and that's very detailed and expansive. It's like a whole different guy, you know, but these are military things. He took those seriously, but with film stuff, he didn't want you to, he didn't want to explain his films to you, you know, and I, at first, that bothered me a lot. I, I, he wasn't senile. I asked Boganovich, is he going senile? He said, no, 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 that's just his way of, you know, putting you off. And, you know, he's, he, he gets everything. And, and um, but he didn't want to explain stuff. He wanted you to figure out his films, you know. And I respect that now a great deal because today's filmmakers, um, 
when they make a film like Christopher Nolan or whatever, they'll give 150 interviews and talk at great length. And sometimes it's very interesting, but they're kind of explaining to you what you should think of their film. And um, Ford wouldn't do that. He, he wanted, he had more respect for the audience. He wanted you to think of it, uh, think on your own about what is he saying and what is this film about? And it doesn't spell out its messages always, you know. And Ford gave an interview to Hedda Hopper in 1962, the gossip columnist. And I found this quote that she didn't print at the time. Um, he said, um, uh, don't let this get around. I pretend, he said, I pose as an illiterate. And that was very revealing. He posed as an illiterate. He, he also didn't want the studios to know what he was thinking. And they, I have some quotes in my books from studio executives and producers like, we never know what's on John Ford's mind. We can't figure this guy out. They were intimidated by him because he wouldn't cooperate with them. And he would, he would say, what, what? Or, you know, and he, he wouldn't answer questions. And it's, it was part of his defense mechanism against the world. Um, they had to leave him alone and the press kind of had to leave him alone too, you know? Interesting. I wonder, um, To me, that's uh, on surface level, it sounds like there's a massive layer of confidence mm -hmm. in your work to not feel like you have to explain yourself to a studio, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think is something very common, at least from what's been talked about nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, to me, it sounds like really intense confidence. But do you think it could have had more to do with um, his desire to leave his work as just an art form rather than something that's really attached to him? Well, yeah, I mean, the last thing you said was kind of a good insight. Uh, the whole thing was a good insight, but the last thing, attached to him or not attached to him, I mean, that's why I did the biography, because these films are attached to him. They came out of this guy who you mm -hmm. see in the background here, rough-looking guy wearing a Dodgers hat and, you know, um, but he um, he was a very sensitive man, you know, and I, I was thinking the way to understand him as an artist is just look at his films. They're very beautiful. They're very artistic. They're very complex ideologically and psychologically, and uh, they're enigmatic in a lot of ways. They don't explain the characters are often enigmas like Ethan Edwards and the searchers. People debate his motives a lot. And uh, that's good filmmaking. It's good drama where you don't just tell stuff to people that's bad screenwriting you know and andrew knows from screenwriting that you don't just have people say i love you i hate you or whatever you know it's oblique dialogue is better and um when i was a young screenwriter i realized at some point nobody in my scripts ever tells a lie hmm. i thought this is really a limitation because in real life people don't often just tell the truth and they lie a lot or they you know, they By tell themselves so-called white lies or they lie to themselves. That's even more interesting. And, but uh, often, uh, you don't, you know, when you meet somebody, you don't just tell your whole life story, only if you trust people and get to know them. But um, there's kind of an intricate game of conversation that goes on with people and, and people talk to different people in different ways. And, and uh, so I, but I was raised as a Catholic kid and taught to not tell lies. And I'm still a very honest person, but I had to learn for my own self-protection not to just blurt out my inner thoughts, at, you know, to everybody I met, which I used to do, and that's kind of stupid and 
it, it's a defense mechanism to to protect yourself uh, from mm -hmm. self-exposure too much uh, you know you don't want to just you know i mean and also you can hurt people's feelings if you meet somebody and say well you're really an idiot or, you don't do that kind of thing uh yeah if you meet a studio executive and he's considering your your script and he says something stupid you say that's the stupidest goddamn comment well, you <laughs> might say that just to intimidate the guy but um you know so then when i started having people lie and talk obliquely my scripts improved vastly you know mm -hmm. uh and I learned, but that's the way Ford was too. He was cryptic, and but he wanted you to to look at his films for yourself, and he trusted you to do that. But there was a great sense of self protection in that too. Ford was a very uh, sensitive fellow, and he protected himself. Uh, his daughter said he wore dark glasses so people couldn't see his sensitive eyes. Mm. But if there are very few pictures of Ford without glasses on, and he looks different. His eyes look very kind of soft. And Olive Carey was the person who knew him longest, who I met. And she was an actress, the wife of the actor Harry Carey and the mother of Harry Carey Jr. And she was in some of his films. I said, why are you not in more Ford movies? And she said, because I'm a lousy actress. I thought, talk about an honest person. You know, she was wonderful, just a wonderful lady. But she knew him since he was um, first in Hollywood in 1914. And she said he was a softy. He was a um, pussycat in mm -hmm. lion's clothing, is the way she put it. And uh, he was. She said he was always play acting. He, she said, "Bless his heart, he, he 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 never stopped play acting. He was always. But he he had this gruff act, but he was just hiding his sensitive self. And in Hollywood, you have to kind of do that, frankly, uh, to survive. And in life, there's a certain amount of that. I mean, you don't want to be so hard in life that people can't relate to you and ford was got to be kind of like that but with close friends he would let down his guard but and with the audience he lets down his guard if you see say how green was my valley that's such a beautiful emotional film and sensitive and uh warm and uh sad and bitter and all kinds of emotions um it's there's no screen between you and the author of the film you know but with ford as a person he was very hard to get a straight answer out of you know that's why it's interesting to write about that's why writing a biography was worth doing and it's a challenge i mean there's some people well you know i mean there's some people we know a lot about but actually a friend of mine bob thomas who wrote hollywood biographies once told me he said what people want from a biography is um they want to read about somebody they think they know but they don't really know and the biography will inform them about who this person really is. And you thought he or she was like this, but no, they're really like this. And so the biographies I've done, I've been, you know, kind of going behind the the image or the facade of people. And um, uh, some people might not be interesting to write about because they're not as complex, but certainly Ford was about as complicated as you come. That's why it took so long to write the book. Uh, one thing that helped me write this book was you know, figuring out Ford's politics is very complicated. Sometimes he seemed liberal, sometimes he seemed conservative, and all in the whole spectrum. And um, I wrote a piece, you can find it online, about Ford's politics for the Los Angeles Times Magazine when the book came out. I, I took scattered parts of the book about politics and I put it all together into a coherent essay. But I remember Abraham Polanski, who was a friend of mine, he was a great blacklisted writer, director, um, and I referred to Ford once as conservative, and he said, no, you can't call Ford conservative. He said, uh, 
Um, he's he's not simple. You can never say liberal conservative. You can't label this man. He's too complex. And that helped me a lot because I realized, well, you know, he he doesn't cohere. There were times when he was liberal. There are times when he was conservative. There are times when he was socialistic, as he called himself in the 30s. And other times he was reactionary. And he was all over the map. And that's one reason he's a great artist in a way and a difficult human being. And I, I I wanted to interview Richard Nixon, who I'm fascinated by, uh, and he was a big Ford fan, so I wrote him a letter. This is in the 80s, and he wrote back right away and said, uh, uh, John Ford is my hero in every sense of the word, uh, and I'd love to talk to you about him, but I'm writing a book on world peace. So he said, instead, I'll just write you my thoughts. And a week later, I got this envelope from Seven World Trade Center, which is Nixon's office building at the wow. time. It was an essay on John Ford that he wrote for my book, and it was 535 words. And it was part of it was kind of like a crazy rant about the Vietnam War and how they kind of agreed on it and all this. But um, but some of the insights were really good. He said Ford was uh, like Tolstoy. He compared him to Tolstoy. Most people compare Ford to Shakespeare, people who admire Ford. And that's a good comparison because of Shakespeare's history plays or like Ford's history films. But Tolstoy was a great artist who was extremely complicated as a human being he was an aristocrat who wanted to be a peasant and he was a libert he was a libertine who tried to be um ascetic you know and um a holy man and um he was just a, a mess of contradictions and confusions and he, you know he left home at one point and, and walked when he was a really old man and the whole nation was wondering what he was doing and died in a train station and you know, a tremendously complicated man, a very difficult man. You'd hate to be married to him. You know, his wife, Sonia, I read a biography of her and she sure put up with a lot. Uh, <laughs> but he was a super great writer. And so if you look at War and Peace, which is a vast novel about history, and I don't know how many characters there are, but there are probably a couple hundred at least. And he could he could write about all different kinds of people, you know, um, because inside of him lived all these kind of people and that's what a great artist does shakespeare too uh but tolstoy all the conflicts i think help pr uh, produce great art and if you look at most artists they're kind of screwed up people pretty much and that's one reason i'm against this whole cancel culture thing it's also partly it's it goes against the constitution and um legal principles you know people deserve a day in court if they're accused of a crime um and you shouldn't fire somebody for his or her political beliefs as is being done today or accusations etc cetera, etc cetera. but um you know in reality if you're if, if you like a, a, an artist's work there's a tendency to be sentimental and think you're going to love the artist and that doesn't that doesn't necessarily work because a lot of the greatest artists are not lovable people i mean picasso for example super great painter but you know had a lot of things about him that we would object to and that's true of most great artists you, you might not want to know them you know um but you can admire their work despite that and ford is sort of in that category and i wish i'd known him better but he, he was a hard man to deal with even if you were his friend so i do have more questions for you joe uh but before i continue uh let's get to the review of the film mm -hmm. Ariana, can we please have a review of Seven Women? Yes, Seven Women. 
Uh, okay, so quick um, was summary of the film. It seems to be that there is a mission for which a woman, a woman leads the mission, and it's an educational society where they teach the local kids about, uh, I would say, Christian values. They minister to the youth that's there in China. Mm-hmm. In China, right? Mm-hmm. And China's in the midst of some some type of uh, bandits attack or rebellion going on. And uh, it's the story of this collection of individuals, mostly women, who I, I'm having a hard time. I, I had a hard time as I was watching it, kind of pinpointing the overarching um story itself which is like for grade wise i would give this film for me uh because i have a hard time with this kind of thing i've said this many times in the podcast that i'm rather simple and i go to the movies to be blindly entertained (laughs) and smiles and if i if i don't have that then i really like um like really distinct like uh character development and um like this uh, being basically watching an actor do what they do uh, those are my two favorite things to see and experience when I'm at the movies and so films like this are really challenging for me because I really feel like as I was watching it it's I didn't really feel like it was um, significantly about the character development of each individual person I really felt like the film was trying to tell me something more and um, so I would get for me I would give this like a b minus because it did that very well really challenged my my thinking and it was um really I I had to try to explore to understand what the thread was and so I feel like this is a film I probably have to watch again and I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say from a writer's point of view because I feel like if there's a thread to be seen it's going to be in the writing Mm -hmm. um because such there's such an alchemy of individual characters and it seems like they all kind of stay in their lane for the most part until like the last like 15 minutes and everything kind of flips. And uh, that by the time it got to the end, it was, I was just trying so hard to understand the, the journey that they all take because the story itself is relatively, I mean, it, what happens is kind of expected. It's, it talks about in the very beginning that there's this bandit on the loose that's causing all this trouble mm-hmm. And that there's a woman there that's pregnant and needs a doctor. And you watch, basically, that come to fruition by the end of it. The bandit comes, causes all kinds of trouble, and it totally changes um, a lot of these women's views on uh, how they how they handle. I felt like, I want to say what I got from the film was it seems to be at least the the theme that I felt like was popping out the most was like crisis of faith and um, understanding humanity from a a religious point of view Mm -hmm. and trying to relate to it more as an individual who is religious. At least that was, that seemed to be the big story Mm -hmm. between the two main women of the film. Um, But there's so much in there and I just, I want to hear you guys talk about it because I think it'll get my, my brainwaves working as to what, what this film could have been trying to tell me. So I feel like there's a lot in there. I just have a hard time grasping it because this is not my typical film that I that I typically watch. 
Um, so I really want to, I want to know your guys' thoughts. I feel like there's going to be some juicy details in there that I missed. <laughs> well, that's a good, good overview of the problems raised by the film. Um, you know, and when I first saw it, I, it took me, I mean, I didn't totally understand it the first time. And then I saw it repeatedly and it becomes more and more clear. And that's true of a lot of good films. And it, it is, they're complex people in the film, especially the two main women, as you mentioned, the head of the mission is one person. But I would say the doctor. And she's exposing the religious hypocrisy of the mission leader. And some of the other people are more, you know, uh, true to their faith. But this woman is tyrannical and intolerant. And, you know, she's not a good Christian in a sense. I mean, I think the irony of the film is that the real person who exemplifies Christian values is the atheist doctor. Christian values in the sense of you don't have to be a believer, but you, you know, you're kind to your fellow man and you help the sick and you uh, um, are tolerant and, you know, the things that people forget. Uh, right. I mean, like today, there are a lot of people who claim they're good Christians, but they're, they hate other people. And that's not what Jesus would be doing if he came back. You know, unfortunately, if he came back, the first thing would happen would be he would be crucified again, I'm sure, you know. There was Lenny Bruce did a routine of Jesus and Moses coming back to New York in the 60s, and they go to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and they're both, they look like beatniks because they're wearing these long cloaks and sandals and, and beards and stuff, and they get thrown out of St. Patrick's because they're a couple of bums, you know, and that, that's, that's a wonderful sketch that he does about, it's called Religions Incorporated, I think. And Ford had a somewhat sardonic view of, of that, and, uh, um, but, you know, it's 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 a conflict that's some, somewhat argued over issues, but some of it is just the way people behave in the film, right? The doctor behaves in a way that is trying to help people. Peter Bogdanovich said uh, he was he, he asked Ford, you know, why does the doctor sacrifice herself for the others? And Ford said, well, Peter, you know, she's a doctor and her mission is to save people. I mean, you know. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple in that sense. Yeah, that line where she says that he, she took an oath to preserve human life. It's that simple. Right. There's a wonderful line, and Ford has a big close-up, which he doesn't use a lot of close-ups, but when he does, it's important. And Flora Robson, who plays an older lady who's a, a different denomination, and the mission leader looks down on this lady because she's not the same church, you know, but mm -hmm. she's a good person. And... Um, Somebody says that, you know, why is the doctor doing these things? And, and she says in close-up that Dr. Cartwright has taken an oath to preserve human life. A beautiful line, you know. And uh, But it is not easy to do that in that situation, 1935 China. And it's accurate about the background. China was in turmoil at the time. It was uh, a civil war going on. It was ruled by warlords who controlled different parts of china who were you know illegal bandits and they would be fighting with other warlords the government had kind of broken down but the background is chaotic and dangerous and that these women are there thinking that they're isolated from this and they're deluding themselves because it's a terribly dangerous place to be and they have this little mission it, it's kind of like a western in some ways it, it looks like a fort in a it's a lot like Ford Apache. Yeah, I'd recommend that highly. It's the film, Ford film that got me into Ford. And it has kind of a similar plot in a way. You have this very hard-nosed commander who's very intolerant and racist. And then this good-natured uh, 
second in command played by john wayne who uh gets along with indians and he's 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 a good fellow and he's trying to stop this crazy commander from leading the men into a massacre and it's, it's kind of a similar theme and it's a fort you know and and, and the mission is like a fort just to be clear, you mean uh, Amer um, uh, Indigenous Americans, or when you say Indians? And in, oh, well, I, I use the word Indian in the old sense, uh, um, referring to Native Americans as people call them today. But in, in this uh, Chinese film, it's like a Chinese Western in a sense. You know, mm -hmm. there are all these Chinese people out out there, and, and there are a few of them in the mission. But it's this white-dominated uh, mission where they're racist toward the people they're supposed to be protecting not all the women are racist but some of them there's a range of people my my landlady jane chang is in this film uh i'll tell you this wonderful story there um when i, I was living in beverly hills in 1974 i moved into this apartment house and the landlady was this uh, um I don't know how old she was, probably 60s, uh, Chinese-American lady, very, very beautiful, dignified, and wonderful lady. And uh, I said to her, were you an actress? We were chatting, and I was moving my stuff in. She said, no. And I thought, oh, okay. And I went into my apartment, and I opened a box, and I had, and I had a copy of Calle du Cinema, and there was a picture of Ford directing the cast of Seven Women, and there she was, this lady, Jane Chang. She played Miss Ling in Seven Women. Oh she's my gosh! A, she's a Mandarin princess who comes in, and the and the bandits degrade her and uh, abuse her. And she's beautiful, and she's wearing this spectacular gown when she comes in. And um, so anyway, I said, "Isn't this you?" And she said, and she broke into this big smile, and then we became good friends. <laughs> and uh, she opened up, and she told me a fascinating thing. She said the reason she quit acting is that every single director she ever had in Hollywood said the same thing to her when she was trying to act. They would say, quote, Orientals don't show emotion. Oriental was the term they used back then. That's the term we don't use anymore. We say Asian people, you know. But they would say, Orientals don't show emotion. This was a cliche that they have this poker face, and it's ridiculous, you know, just like anybody else. And so she said, you know, you can't act if you can't show emotion. But she said John Ford was the only director who let her have an emotional, a big emotional scene. She has a, a big scene and a big close-up. And she said she was so grateful to him. You know, she loved John Ford for letting her be a human being in this movie. And I thought that tells you a lot about John Ford right there, you know. I mean, I just feel like you've got so many of these beautiful serendipitous moments in, in your career you uh the world definitely wanted you to be doing these things <laughs> yeah i wish i'd done even more sometimes i think well, i met so-and-so and they were in a ford movie i mean one time I, I went to the first time i went to buckingham palace as a tourist i was standing there in 1972 watching the changing of the guard and i was right at the fence and right below me in the first row was this tiny little old lady and I realized this is Helen Hayes, the famous actress who was called the first lady of the American stage. And she was a star of a Ford movie, Aerosmith. And I didn't I didn't say, geez, Miss Hayes, could I sit and talk to you? Would I can I buy you a coffee and talk about John Ford? You know, I wish I had done that now. But, you know, I guess I shouldn't be kicking myself over opportunities I missed. But 
I, I did meet other people like that who who were in Ford movies, and I didn't ask. I met Dana Andrews once, and I didn't take the opportunity to ask him about the two Ford movies he was in. I wish I had. Grace Kelly, I met her, and wow, she was in Mogambo, and I I should have said, you know. Well, we called her Her Serene Highness was her official title. <laughs> Princess Grace, could I come over and talk to you about Mogambo? And she probably would have said yes. You know, people like talking about Ford. But I interviewed a lot of people. And but here with Miss Chang, um, it was just because I recognized her. You know, and I've noticed that people, even people in L.A., you'd see you know some well-known people walking around, and people don't recognize them. Sometimes they don't want to bother them, you know, like if you see somebody at the supermarket. I saw Doris Day pushing a cart at the supermarket once and I didn't go up and talk to her, but that might be rude. But um, in this situation where you have a landlady and you want to chat with her, that's fine. Yeah, you're going to be around her more often, might as well chat. <laughs> yeah, I get to know her, you know, and yeah. the, I did that and we got along great, you know. What made you want to pick that movie for this episode? What do you like about the film? Well, I just love that film so much. Uh, it, it resonates with me a lot. And, you know, I kind of realized, sometimes you don't realize for many years why you like a certain film. I mean, I have a, a love for the film Modi, which is a French expression meaning, meaning damned film. Jean Cocteau coined that phrase. Films that are maligned or ignored or uh, neglected in their time and then Sometimes people pick them up years later. And there are certain films that I love that everybody hates, like Exorcist to the Heretic, I think is a great film. And I was interviewed for a documentary on that recently. And I told the guy, I've, I count the number of people who like that film. And I think we're up to about 10 now, you know. Um, but Seven Women was really maligned in its time in, in America anyway. And um, that I, I have a kind of love for the underdog and I, I feel protective for the underdog. And, and also the late films of great directors often get uh, pissed on, you know, by people. Um, uh, I, I, there's a whole body of theory about late style. You know, people are more interested in that now. Um, Andre Bazin, the great French critic, defended the work of old filmmakers who he said they're often considered senile just because they're old and they're kind of obsessed with certain themes and the late films are often very quirky and sometimes um, he pointed out they're often stripped of extraneous things. And Seven Women is very minimalist in some senses, mostly shot on a studio set. And um, that was uh, mocked and attacked by stupid reviewers saying Ford doesn't like to go outside or some nonsense like that. Pauline Kale, I quoted, she she um, didn't like Liberty Valance for that reason. It's mostly shot in the studio. And I think it's done because it's a film of ideas. It's not about landscapes. It's not beautiful landscapes. Ford did this very consciously. But she she when he did a film that had beautiful landscapes, like The Searchers, she would make fun of it for, um, you know, she'd say the beautiful, pure landscapes of the West in, in a sarcastic way, you know. And then when he didn't do it, she would mock him for not going outside. I mean, it's just people season whatever but um often as bazan and other people talk about old filmmakers strip their work of um things that are not necessary and they get right down to the basics and in this case you the background is kind of abstracted i mean they actually have painted back backdrops of uh, 
the, the outside world, although in some cases there's a there's a gate that they show and they built a gate out in the San Fernando Valley and there's some scenes like that where you can see people going to and from the gate. But um, Ford's interest is in the characters, mostly in Seven Women. But one thing I found when they mutilated the film, um, MGM, because of the, they had a bad preview in Pasadena, although I, I, I should qualify that, um, bad preview, about half the people liked it and half hated it. And this was the summer of 65. And I was surprised because I read the preview cards in Ford's papers, and they were very different from what I expected. Um, the reviewers in America attacked it because of they said it was artificial, old-fashioned, corny, like a 1930s film or whatever. And um, that wasn't those weren't the complaints of the people who didn't like the film in the summer of '65, which was the summer the Sound of Music was the big hit. You know, it was strictly a nice film, but a cornball film. Um, th they were shocked. Some people that they thought Ford was attacking religion. And actually, I mean, I, I I have the quotes. Let me just, it's worth uh, reading some of these quotes, the good and the bad. Uh, somebody wrote, uh, did John Ford flip his lid or is he getting senile? Egads, I haven't seen such an inane, corny, ridiculous, stupid, asinine, lousy movie in years. Who is the weirdo atheist author? So you know where that idiot is coming from. Then there's another one who wrote, I think that to laugh or make any religion ridiculous is poor taste, to say the least. I'm surprised at John Ford. And um, another one wrote, too many scenes of perversion. I'm not a Puritan, but do perverts have to make so many pictures, and why must they force their perversions on the public? This sounds like the character in Dr. Strangelove who keeps talking about preversions. Yeah. Don't, don't try any preversions in there, you know. Um, <laughs> like what perversions are they talking about? Yeah, the well, what they call perversion is is a homophobic uh, response to the mission leader is revealed to be a latent lesbian. There's a scene. Sue Lyon plays the youngest member of the mission uh, staff, and she's this beautiful young woman, and she was Lolita, you know, in the Stanley Kubrick film, and she has this very nubile look. And actually, MGM insisted on casting her. She wasn't for its first choice, and, and they wouldn't make the film unless they cast Sue Lyon, and she got more money than anybody else. I like Sue Lyon; she's good in the film, but she's she's undressed in in her uh, bedroom, and the mission leader uh, knocks on the door and pushes the door open, and there's a great close-up of Margaret Leighton uh, looking her over with her eyes, her half-naked body. Yeah, it's very. It, I mean, I uh, when I watch old movies, I always have to. Because I don't expect that to be a part of the storytelling for back then, just because it, I don't know, wasn't as talked about it as, as it is now. So I always try to figure out what are they trying to do there? And it was so, to me, her acting, it was very obvious that it was an attraction, like a struggle with attraction. But um, I didn't, I didn't let myself believe it until the end conversation that she has with the doctor about it, about her, the uh, having a family not being enough. Um, that's when it was, I feel like confirmed that that was what she was experiencing, which I thought was fascinating and bold for, you know, a movie of that time. Yeah, it was not, homosexual themes were not often talked about, although the authors of the script, Janet Green and John McCormick, who uh, Andrew asked me about, 
It's interesting. They were uh, a married couple of English screenwriters, and, and they were known for socially conscious films in England. And they wrote a film called Victim, which was a 1961 film about homosexuality, which was still illegal in England. And it was about a, um, a barrister, you know, a lawyer played by Dirk Bogart, who's a great actor. And he was secretly homosexual and some blackmailer was trying to expose him. It's a good film. And it was the first time that theme had been frankly explored in the British screens. And Janet Green also wrote on her own a movie called Sapphire in 1959, which is about a woman who's passing for white, a, a woman who's part black, and she gets murdered. And um, it turns out her brother is obviously black. And, you know, it's an interesting movie about racial prejudice in England. And so they were very conscious of those kinds of themes. And, and Ford had not had... Um, gay themes in his work very much there, there there are a couple of characters you could say are obviously gay in a couple of earlier Ford films but this is this is franker on that subject than he had been before but it's very moving i think that um the the woman who is so repressed and she's very harsh toward the doctor who talks about her sexual life to some extent she She's a single woman, but she she said she had an affair with a married man in America, and, and it broke up, and that's one reason she left America and took a job in China, you know, and she's kind of half drunk when she says this, and this horrifies the mission leader that somebody is talking about an extramarital affair. So she's a repressed uh, woman sexually and puritanical, and so Ford is exposing her hypocrisy, and she goes over to Sue Lyon and starts fiddling with her hair, you know, and kind of stroking her shoulders and things. And Sue Lyon looks confused, like what's what's going on here? And then there is a wonderful scene under the tree that you alluded to where uh, uh, the mission leader um, is going to talk to the doctor. And she's very distraught, partly because the young woman gets very ill and she's afraid she's gonna die. And she's her feelings are getting quite clear. And she, she admits, uh, she says, I've always searched for something that isn't there. And then she says, God help me. God isn't enough. He isn't enough. And it's such a great speech. Wow. That's so John Forty. And I've always searched for something that isn't there. You know, she's admitting that God, you know, she's spent her whole life worshiping God and it isn't enough to sustain her. Yeah, and, you know, she's bearing her soul to the doctor who's an atheist and it's very moving and uh, but searching you know when you know the searchers and other john ford films is a motif that ford deals with a lot of people searching for the meaning of life uh, generally you know that's what ethan edwards is finding in the searchers who am i and what do i stand for and what is society about and what is family about you know and so this this um, hypocritical mission woman I mean, you feel for her because she's so tormented, too. That's part of the story. And uh, But she goes mad at the end of the film. Um, and she starts railing against the doctor as the horror of Babylon and things like this. Because the doctor has to um, sacrifice herself for the others. And part of that is uh, being the sexual slave of this uh, brutal mission leader. And she dresses up in this Mandarin coat. Ford wanted to call the film The Mandarin Coat. But MGM and like that title so they gave him a list of titles but she's all dressed up and she's having sex with this uh brutal guy but she kills herself to help them escape and also to avoid being the sexual slave of this guy but 
this this sends the doctor over the edge. I mean, the the mission leader over the edge, and she starts ranting. There's a great scene where she's ranting with what sounds like biblical verse, and then Flora Robeson, who I mentioned, this old woman who's from a different religion, says that sounds like scripture, Miss Andrews, but you made it up. So she's smart enough to recognize this is not the Bible you're quoting. This is bullshit. That you're. I loved her character. Yeah, she's a great person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of the women in or the acting in the film was a little bit stern, almost unnatural. And this woman, who's the leader of the other mission, her like presence and her uh, ability to be like stern and kind of um, I don't want regimented isn't the right word. I think it's more like religiously poised. <laughs> kind of hers felt very natural you know like that she she lives in that zone but she's very um she honors the her beliefs in a way that she still wants to connect with people and that kind of it doesn't feel like a facade or the way that she presents herself and i i I loved her character i thought she was really interesting to watch yeah she was wonderful and a great actress flora robeson famous actress of english film and stage and uh she was a dame of the British Empire, and she insisted on having Dame Flora Robson on her dressing room door. Ford kind of needled her about that. Uh, Anna Lee, who who's in the film, uh, told me that she said people wondered how Ford was going to behave on this film because usually he's rough on the actors and he picks a scapegoat and a film mostly about women, you know. But she said he couldn't have been more gentlemanly. He was just really well behaved. But he picked on Eddie Albert, who's like the one prominent male in the film he just as, as Anna Lee said he crucified poor Eddie you know I interviewed Eddie Albert he's a nice man but he, he put up with it because he knew that Ford was that's his perverse nature but he was super super nice to all the actresses and Sue Lyon arrived on the set one day with a beanie that she had put together that said John Ford is a sweetie pie you never heard that before you know but Flora Robeson he, he did make fun of her for saying dame you know but ford was he liked to pretend to be anti-british because he was an irish patriot you know but she's magnificent in the film and, and she's she is a very good you know serene person compared to some of the others mildred dunnock is great too plays miss uh, uh miss argent who's the second in command in the mission one of the scenes that they cut they cut six minutes out of the film they cut basically three scenes um the most important scene early in the at the very beginning, Miss Argent goes over to Miss Andrews when she comes back from a trip, and she says, uh, "Has the letter arrived from headquarters?" It reminds me of Ford saying, "Has the letter arrived from the gentleman from Italy?" So anyway, she goes and the letter has arrived, and Miss Argent, played by Mildred Dunnock, who's a great actress, kind of plays a meek little woman, you know, and she's she she can't stand. Um, miss andrews because she's such a bully and she's applied to run her own mission and it's been turned down and so there's a scene which i've seen where miss andrews reads the letter from headquarters and it's denying her her own mission and miss andrews says the lord has created some to command and some to serve very cruel and then uh, miss argent is weeping and she says pride is a sin too, Miss Andrews. It's a really important scene in the film, and it explains why this woman turns against her, and you see gradually hostilities developing. And at the end of the film, she tells her off in a very uh, kind of stunning way, um, but it's kind of cryptic. I wondered that certain shots seem a little odd, 
um, without that scene in it. And, but there were two scenes. I mentioned that the film is set in this, you know, restricted area, but Ford actually filmed two scenes outside that were not in the film that were in the studio cut, which is interesting because it sort of, you know, puts in relief more that most of it takes place indoors, but it's not as as much indoors as people thought. Uh, one is a scene in which the bandits are looting the nearby town, and it's a very expressionistic scene done uh, with uh, details of uh, fire and destruction and uh, buzzards and trees and things. A very interesting scene. And then there's a comical scene where Woody Strode, who plays uh, this bandit second-in-command, um, has a crush on Anne Bancroft, and they go riding together. This is supposed to be kind of like a sexual courtship scene and Woody Strode picks some flowers and gives them to uh Anne Bancroft and um it makes Mike Mazurgi the bandit leader very angry at him he later kills him and it's partly because of this sexual rivalry is the reason he kills this guy <laughs> when when without that you think why is he killing this guy he kills his second in command what the hell is going on and uh it's partly over the sexual jealousy theme that they build up and if you look at the film as it is, Woody Strode is uh, often giving kind of uh, romantic looks at Anne Bancroft. Courtship is part of the comic relief in this film, which is basically pretty grim. But uh, so they cut those scenes. Let me read the good comments, some of the good comments from the preview. Very good film makes one think about the true religions of his heart. I think that's a really good comment about this film, the true religions of his heart what is religion well you know it's about caring for other people it's not about you know adhering to a certain doctrine etc that's what ford is talking about another one wrote this film completely depressed me but that's because it was so good i wish it didn't make me feel so bad but i guess that's what makes a film exciting if you can really get so much out of it that's somebody who is somewhat confused but in an interesting way um and i love this comment powerful actors great contrast bancroft swashbuckling like Fairbanks, bring us more women of true heroic proportions. That's a good point. Uh, she's a strong woman, which offended certain people in the audience. And here's one more. Script was terrific, directing, acting, terrific. One of the best movies, humorous, dramatic, everything added to make a great motion picture. Um, but then one person just wrote stunk, you know what I mean? So the studio, like a bunch of idiots, they, um, they listened to the people who didn't like the film and they cut six minutes out, which didn't help. I mean, make people like it more. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't like it. I mean, that's one of the dumb things when they start trying to fix a problem with the film. Um, and then they dumped the film in January 65 in uh, on double bills. Back then, if they didn't think a film was worth you know supporting very much they'd throw it on the second half of a double bill and release it to crummy second run theater so it had its premiere in new york on 42nd street which was where the b movies played and the porno movies played and things like that in those days so it's never had a proper new york opening and that kind of signals to reviewers that we don't think much of this movie too you know and then the reviewers are you know are lemmings as, as usual and they just kind of take their cue so what i'm trying to do and i, I know andrew uh, would would be asking about this I'm, I'm trying to spearhead a restoration of seven women and i've been saying this for years and i i, I took some action a few years ago uh, warner brothers owns the film because they bought the mgm library uh 
at one point and um, uh, I went to them and I said, see, I had seen the six minute longer version was on syndicated TV in the 70s. I flipped it on one night on, in LA and there was the longer version. Plus they repeated the credits at the end to pad it out. And I asked somebody at Variety who knew more than I did. And he said, oh, well, you know, the film was um, short. Um, it was only 87 minutes long when they got done cutting it. And he said they padded it probably because uh, syndication, uh, the local stations like a film to be a bit longer, you know, to fit into a two hour time slot with commercials. And so that's why they repeated the credits. But I, so I had seen this version and a friend of mine has a 16 millimeter print of the film but it's pan and scan. But anyway, so I went to Warner's and I said, uh, I'd like to restore seven women, put, hopefully find these six minutes, put them back in and give the film a proper launch again, you know, like have a proper New York preview. And I went to Bruce Goldstein of Film Forum in New York where they show a lot of important art films and foreign films. And he said, yeah, I'd love to sponsor a big New York premiere of the film. And you know, I predict it would be well received if over the years the film has acquired a good reputation. And um, they Warners didn't even know the film had been cut. You know, I mean, they don't have any institutional memory of this. And at first they were saying, well, that's interesting. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, like they have their um, uh, negatives in a salt mine in Kansas or someplace. That's where studios store their most precious things in case there's like a nuclear war or whatever or a hurricane or whatever um so they didn't want to spend the money to go down into the mine to look for it and so we got martin scorsese involved i had a couple friends involved julie, julie kirgo is a good friend of mine she's a great film buff and film expert and she helped run a company called twilight time which uh put out blu-rays and dvds and she's she writes a lot of film essays and she and i worked on a documentary called ford at fox that she wrote and I was interviewed on it and I was an advisor and she's she's a screenwriter too. And um, so I, I know she loves the film. So um, I, I recruited her and a couple of other people. And um, we had big ideas like doing a documentary about the film. Sue Lyon agreed to be in the documentary. She never agreed to do those things. Like she never did a documentary on Lolita or anything, but she loved Seven Women so much. She said, sure. And she's unfortunately died. But I wrote a long treatment for a documentary, and it's like the last time I did a treatment for free. But um, I also wanted to get outtakes and things to put on the DVD and the Blu-ray, including um, Patricia Neal was playing Dr. Cartwright at first, and she had a she had three strokes in one night on, after the third day of shooting. Wow. She had a she went home and she was bathing her daughter in her rental home and she had a stroke and her husband Roald Dahl the famous writer took her to UCLA, UCLA Medical Center and while they were preparing to uh, operate on her she had two more strokes including the worst one and she was left unable to talk and walk and uh, and uh, read or anything and she, they had to replace her with Anne Bancroft overnight you know and um um, there's the reason I know about all this. There was a book called Pat and Ruled by a guy named Barry Farrell, and I, I read that book once. It was at an airport, and I thought, well, oh, this is probably some you know kind of quickie book about the making of partly about the making of seven women. I read this; it's a very moving book about 
how Roald Dahl helped his wife come back from her stroke. And it's a love story. It's, it's very powerful. And I went to the author and I, I took an option on it. I said, I want to make a movie out of this. It'd be a great movie. And he said, I've always felt it would be a good movie, but you're the first person who's ever come to see me about it. And I said, I don't have any money, but could I take an option for a dollar for six months? And we wrote a little paper and I went around Hollywood trying to sell it. And nobody, everybody said, oh, Jesus, she has a stroke. That's really depressing. I said, this is the opposite of depressing. It's inspiring. It's beautiful. I wanted to start on the set of Seven Women when she enters the mission, wonderful scene in the film, and then show what happens and, um, uh, then show the recovery and anyway, but nobody would go for it. And I, I gave up the option. I went back to Barry Farrell and I should have just continued as long as he was willing, run around with it. The one thing I didn't think of was TV movie, you know, and back then TV movies were, they, they called them rather cynically disease of the week. You know, you could always get a TV movie made about any disease, somebody having cancer or, brain tumor or whatever you know people would go for that kind of thing so they made a tv movie of it that i wasn't involved in starring glenda jackson who i think is kind of strange casting i wanted to have ann bancroft play patricia neal which would have been interesting if she was willing to do it and i wanted um robert shaw to play her husband who was kind of a big rough guy that would have been terrific but they had dirk bogart play her husband i'm sure he's good but he's not the same kind of actor but um i've never seen this movie but anyway uh so but i wanted to find patricia neal's scenes if they're down in the vault somewhere and they said well we found a lot of stuff and we're not sure what we found and we don't know how to put it back together and julie and i said well we know how to put it just turn it over to us and so we got martin actually the reason they went down in the salt mine we got martin scorsese involved we went to him and he said yeah this is a great movie i love this film and you know he's the champion of film restoration preservation and, and he's involved in the film foundation and he wrote a letter which uh he, to warner brothers he said uh, joe mcbride and julie cargo and a couple of other people who were involved one of them died another dropped out but um i support this i'll support this in any way and they got interested and they went down into the salt mine and they said yeah we found a lot of negative material but we don't quite know what it is and then they kind of lost interest and nothing happened and i got busy and julie got busy and nick died our other collaborator and so i've tried to re um, resurrect this project because i keep promising to do this and i i've recently approached a um, company I, I won't say anymore <clears throat> that i hope might be interested in doing it i've got some interest going and it seems like a no-brainer to restore John Ford's last feature film, great filmmaker, put it out on Blu-ray. You know, uh, we, we may not do the extras, but just get the film out there and, and restore these three scenes. You know, what the heck? I, I'm going to go back for a moment. Um, you talked about uh, a little bit about Jack Green and John McCormick uh, and their work on this film. How did Ford... If you know, how did Ford usually collaborate on a screenplays? Oh, this was a bit different. Uh, the, I should say this film is based on a short story by an author named Nora Lofts, who's a British author, uh, long dead. The story was written in the 1930s. It takes place in 1935, and it's part of a collection of her short stories. She was a very prolific uh, fiction writer. 
And it's a beautiful story. I've read the story, uh, but it's been fleshed out a lot. And um, uh, but um, Ford had a producing partner, Bernard Smith. Bernard Smith had produced How the West Was Won, for which Ford directed the Civil War segment. I love the credit sequence. It says the Civil War directed by John Ford on a car. That's just wonderful. Ford told Gavin Lambert, who is a friend of mine, an author and screenwriter, in 1961, he went to interview Ford, and Ford was watching what he said was a very um, nondescript documentary about the Civil War, and they watched it together. And Ford told him that the Civil War was his major interest in life, and movies were secondary. And Gavin thought he was joking, but he was not. Uh, people said he knew everything about the Civil War. I mean, it was, this was his obsession. And... Um, he always wanted to make a big film in the Civil War. He did The Horse Soldiers, which is about the Civil War, but it's 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 not about one of the major battles, but it's an interesting film. And he did some other films that touched on the subject, but he wanted to make a Ulysses S. Grant biopic, which would have been wonderful. Uh, Spielberg bought the recent biography by Ron Chernow, and he says he plans to make it. I hope he does. In Lincoln, there's a wonderful... The scene of the surrender of General Lee to Grant is done exactly like John Ford would have filmed it. It's a wonderful sequence. And I'm sure Spielberg had that in mind. If you look at that, I could swear, you know, that's just like a John Ford scene. Um, but Ford worked with Bernard Smith on How the West Was Wanted. So they formed a partnership, made Cheyenne Autumn, you know, big film about Native Americans, and then they made Seven Women. And I think Smith found the story. I'm not sure how. I never interviewed him. He died before I came along. But he was a um, book editor for a long time with Alfred A. Knopf, and he was very well read. And I think he was the one who thought of Janet Green and John McCormick, although I don't know for sure. Um, and Ford didn't have any direct um, meetings with them, and he was not happy about that. He invited them to come over and go on his yacht with him and cruise around Hawaii so they could work on the script. That's what Ford liked to do. And he did that with Dudley Nichols, who wrote a lot of his films in the 30s and 40s. Um, they'd go on the boat for a couple of weeks and talk about, you know, stagecoach or whatever, and Nichols would pound away at the typewriter and and um, come back, and they'd continue working on it. And, and uh, Ford worked that way with Frank Nugent, who wrote a lot of his films later. But Green and McCormick didn't want to leave their home in London, and so Ford was pissed about that. And they would mail in the script, <laughs> and uh, so he he was kind of disgruntled because he felt he didn't didn't have as much input into it as he would have liked. But it's a fine screenplay. Ford wrote the last line of the film. I guess it's not a well. Maybe I shouldn't say. This might be a spoiler. It has a great ending line. As Julie says, this is the ultimate ending for an old director's final film. It's so bleak and so tragic and funny at the same time. It's kind of like a giant fuck you to the world by John Ford. <laughs> but Ford rewrote the line. I found his script in his archives and he penciled in changes. Oh, wow. And he had rewritten the line that the screenwriters wrote and he wrote his own super line at the end of the film. Um, so, so that's what happened with the screenplay on that film, but it's a, a terrific script. And it's, you know, it's kind of interesting that he worked with uh, people he never worked with before who were 
British and uh, like the author of the story. And, uh, you know, it's good to work with different people sometimes. Uh, I actually interviewed George Stevens Jr. earlier today. I interviewed him this morning. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that was great uh, because uh, we talked, I mentioned John Ford to him and I asked him how, to, in terms of the filming process and the editing process, John Ford and it sounds like George Stevens Jr. were pretty separate pretty not similar because you know george stevens jr would have in the editing process he would have takes where he would literally use a projector and project in a theater and use two separate projectors to say okay i'm going to play the scene on this projector and have alternate takes on this projector you mean john, senior you're talking about his dad yeah. yes john yeah. yes you're yeah. yes I, I should have uh yeah Meanwhile, John Ford would just say, cover his hand over the camera and say, okay, that's enough. Did right. I get that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very different approaches. George Stevens Sr., who yeah. Jr. worked on was worked on Shane, for example. I'm sure you talked about that. That's the movie we talked about, yes. Oh, wow. That's my favorite Western. I mean, some people are shocked that I think that's my favorite Western since I love John Ford so much. But I just think Shane is so perfect. It, it's designed as kind of the ultimate Western. It's pure and it's um it's just archetypal and mythic and um it, it had an influence on the searchers i could say direct influence um but you know great great films uh, ford made really great westerns too it's kind of you know who can say what's best but anyway uh george jr found the novel shane he, his dad said we talked about this yeah yeah read these books and you know tell me about it and Actually, when he said, Dad, I think Shane might be a good film. And his father said, well, just tell me the story, right? He probably told you that. Yeah. So one night he said his father was sitting, lying there in bed and he told him the whole story. And, you know, it got him excited and he made the film and George Jr. worked on the film. And, you know, then he worked on um, Diary of Anne Frank and The Greatest Story Ever Told. And he also produced, directed by John Ford, the Bogdanovich direct, uh, documentary about Ford the american film institute and the first afi award was for john ford and george produced that show or he was kind of like the executive producer george jr george jr yeah the, the old man um uh i interviewed him a couple times wonderful guy i love his work i think he's one of the most he's probably the most underrated great american director in my opinion yeah um i think he's just a fabulous director but um yeah uh, he would shoot miles of film and he was kind of indecisive in a sense, but that was his method. He would shoot a lot of coverage, all, all different kinds of ways of covering a scene. And then he would um, take a year or two to edit certain films. I mean, before the war, he was different. He worked quicker. And then he came back from the war and Frank Capra said he was like a different person. He had experienced hell on earth. You know, he had been they they liberated Dachau you know he was with the unit that liberated Dachau for example had a tremendous effect on him I asked him how that affected him he said well I don't I don't suppose I was ever too hilarious again or so hilarious again he made mostly comedies before the war and then after the war he made these large-scale films he got bigger and bigger and very serious um but anyway um he would shoot you know from all angles and then he would spend a lot of time in the editing room and trying to figure out how to put it together. And as you said, he would screen films in, in the screening room a lot. Uh, instead of looking maybe at the 
Moviola, he would want to see it on the big screen to see the rhythms of the scene, you know, as it played in the theater. You said he had two different projectors. One projectors, with, with yeah. the well, George Stevens Jr. said his father would have two projectors, one with a cut version of the scene and the other with alternate takes. And oh, that's how he did that. I see. And he would go back and forth. Yeah. He, he probably had a great projectionist who would help him do that. You know, like, can we run it again you know, for about the 50th time? But Ford was totally different. Ford claimed he didn't cut his own pictures, but people find that a little weird. And I did too, when I first started writing my books, how could a great director not edit his own pictures today? They all do. But, you know, part of it back then, they didn't have the right to cut their own pictures for quite a while. The Directors Guild didn't have the right to the first cut until um, the 30s when the Guild was formed and um, the studio always had the final cut with rare exceptions but you know ford ford didn't have final cut on seven women for example that's why they were able to cut parts of it out um but what he did was he 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 cut the film in the camera is what they call it and um, other directors have done this but ford made a fetish of it he would um, he would only shoot the footage that he intended to use and he had it in his head harry carey jr knew him really well and he told me you know ford had this amazing memory he could he knew exactly every shot and how he was going to plan it. He wouldn't tell people. He wouldn't give people a shot list or any of this kind of stuff. He just oh. knew what he was going to shoot. So, But he wouldn't shoot extra footage. Like a lot of directors will do a master shot of the whole scene from one angle. Then they move in and do medium shots. And then they do close-ups. But they'll do the whole scene over and over and over again. Um, so they have options. But Ford didn't want the studio to have options to recut his pictures because the studios like that. They like to have options, you know, because they'll say, oh, why don't we have a close-up in here? Ford didn't believe in having a lot of close-ups, for example. He, His films, usually, if you look at a lot of his films, there'd be maybe six close-ups in the film. He'd save them for really important moments. And he, he criticized a lot of modern films for overdoing close-ups because they're kind of promiscuous with them. And the more you see a close-up, the less value it has but in a ford film there's a close-up oh this is really important you know seven women has more than usual because it's such an intimate character study but searches doesn't have a lot of close-ups but when it does wow they're really important but um so ford also when he was shooting part of a scene like let's say a, a kind of a master shot of the whole room you know where people are moving around he he would stop at a point where he knew he was going to cut to a medium shot or a close-up or something. He wouldn't just keep shooting the whole scene. He would just say cut, but he would sit right under the camera and then he'd put his hand up in front of the camera like this in front of the lens when he said cut so that the cameraman couldn't crank out 30 seconds more. I mean, he was so strict about it. He didn't want the studio to have 30 seconds more. And, um, then he'd, he'd move the camera in for whatever, you know, let's do the close-up or something. And he wouldn't shoot the whole scene again, just part of it. And um, that was unusual. But when this film was finished, the studio didn't have much option on how to cut it. And sometimes he would say, you know, I'm going off of my boat. You cut the film. And if you know how he did it, I mean, Robert Parrish, who was his editor on some films, once said to him, how do I cut the scene? And 
I think it was young Mr. Lincoln, and he said, well, just, you know, cut the slates off. That's all you have to do. Just join them together. And that's pretty much what he did. And, um, um, but there were times when he actually was in the cutting room, even though he pretended not to. And he often pretended in later years not to have seen his films. Like one time he was at a screening of uh, <clears throat> My Darling Clementine, he got finagled into introducing it somewhere for some reason. And he, he said, well, I've never seen this film, so I think I'll watch it with you, you know. <laughs> it was complete bullshit. But when it was over, he, he pulled out his big handkerchief and he was wiping his eyes like this. He said, you know, that was a pretty good film. And <laughs> people believed him. But um, he knew exactly what was in the film. And he got very upset when Fox cut a lot out of that film, for example. But So that's what Ford did. He cut in the camera. Winton C. Hoke, who was the cameraman of four color films that Ford did, the most beautiful color films he did were The Searchers, Three Godfathers, The Quiet Man, oh, She Wore Yellow Ribbon. They're all stunning color, Technicolor films. And he was, he worked for the Technicolor Corporation in the 30s as a chemist, and he helped develop Technicolor, and the guy was a scientific expert. And then he became a cameraman, and, and um, back then the Technicolor cameras were huge because they exposed three negatives and um, three, three separate strips of film three, at the same three, time. Three strips of film and they had different exposures, et cetera. And then we put them all together. It was color, you know, rich color. And um, so he shot these films for Ford and he said what Ford would do, and this relates to your question about editing. He said that um, uh I, I asked him about the fact that there are a lot of continuity errors in Ford films. If you look at Ford films carefully, the people are going in the wrong direction. You know, that when you're when you're shooting a film, and I was just listening to Orson Welles talk to Bogdanovich about this today. I was playing it's on YouTube. He said when he was shooting Citizen Kane, he got all confused about screen direction, which is you have to if you're having somebody looking one way and you cut to somebody, they have to be looking a certain way. Otherwise it looks chaotic, you know. And he got totally confused. And Greg Toland, his great cameraman who had worked for Ford a lot, said, well, let's let's stop and I'll go to your house and I'll spend the afternoon explaining this to you. And he spent about four hours telling him everything about the camera and about, it was prompted by his question about screen direction. Then Wells said, I figured it out. And then he later said people thought he was being really arrogant when they thought he was saying that Greg Toland taught me everything about the camera in four hours. And they thought that meant I was saying I was such a genius that I could learn everything about films. But he said, actually, you know, he did. Uh, I mean, <laughs> he could do it for anybody. Actually, Ford, when he had his World War II unit, he was training them uh, in advance of the war. He knew the war was coming. Greg Toland did a 10-minute lecture on filmmaking and cinematography. Wow. Could you imagine? I would so love to have been there to hear Greg Toland give a 10-minute lecture on filmmaking. I bet you would learn an awful lot. But four hours of Greg Toland, you would know everything. But anyway, so um, normally you have to be very aware of the direction. And in Stagecoach, people probably remember the big scene where the Indians are chasing the stagecoach. And sometimes the Indians go this way. Sometimes they go this way. People look outside the windows and the Indians are going like this. And he even cuts from one to the other completely against all the rules but it doesn't matter it's all very exciting and you kind of know what's going on but it's breaking all the rules but he did this all the time with with 
just regular scenes where people are walking one way and then they, but what, what hoke said ford did was he um he had people exit the frame from the wrong direction quote wrong direction um but he would have them walk off and clear the frame and he did that so that the studio could not cut in the middle of the shot on action to a closer shot on action because they wouldn't match because Henry Fonda would be going one way in, in the medium shot and then in the closest shot he'd be going the other way and it wouldn't match at all if you cut on action. So they had to wait till he cleared the frame and then you could cut to him in the medium shot and then you could cut to him in the close-up. But, you know, he did that on purpose. So uh, the so-called continuity errors in Ford films are there for a reason. But he never told anybody this except Hoke figured this out. Hoke said one time on Quiet Man, for which he won the Academy Award with Archie Stout, he said he challenged Ford on screen direction and Ford perversely set up a shot from a completely different position just to spite him. You know, because he asked, you know, isn't this the wrong angle or whatever, you know. So that's the secret of John Ford films that you now know. <laughs> I I think that's a good place to start wrapping up. Yeah. I uh, think that that the secret of John Ford. Yeah. Uh, Ariana, Joe, can we get a final thoughts on seven women? Yeah, I um I I don't agree with the the guys that said that it was uh, nonsense. It <laughs> definitely didn't feel like nonsense. It felt very purposeful. Um it just takes a little bit more consideration and more thoughtfulness to figure out what he's trying to say to you. And I think the more that you watch this film, the more you'll understand why the characters are the way that they are and it, why it's so subtle. Um, and I honestly, I first watched through, I didn't love it, but after reflecting on it, I'm actually really grateful that this existed back then because it is really all about these women mm -hmm. and they are um, in a very trying situation. And the fact that the hero of the film is this oddball, at least in the context of the film, ends up making this this massive sacrifice. Um, it's just it's very intriguing and thought provoking for especially for the time, and I can I can definitely appreciate uh, what what he did with the with the film. So mm -hmm. I I like it. If people want to explore historical films and kind of see where a lot of these ideas originated, I think this is a great great one to watch and to try to educate yourself a bit on mm -hmm. fantastic director but it's a beautiful score by elmer bernstein who uses a, a a lonely saxophone as a kind of motif for anne bancroft's character too and it's very beautiful he, ford by the way had nothing to do with the music uh, I, I read that elmer bernstein was given the assignment and he wrote it and said he never talked to ford but he wrote this one of his greatest scores I actually was in the house where he wrote that a friend of mine lives in his old house and I felt wow. So I mean I actually I'm so obsessed with this movie, partly because it's so you know, it was victimized by the people, but also I you know, I, I realized when I said years later you might realize why you like to film and suddenly it occurred to me, well, gee, um when I was a kid, I was really a Catholic, you know, dedicated Catholic kid brainwashed by the Catholic Church by nuns who were vicious like uh, Miss Andrews, you know, cruel and strange uh, psychological uh, warped 
individuals, some of them, and some were very nice, but, you know, I had some really psychotic nuns. Uh, so I had that background, but I wanted to be a priest. And the kind of priest I wanted to be when I was 14, when I was graduating from grade school, was a Mary Knoll missionary. The Mary Knoll priests were missionaries whose specialty was going to China, which in those days we called Red China because we didn't have diplomatic relations with China. It was communistic. And, you know, it's very bad that you don't have relations with the country, even if you're totally against them, because today, you know, I mean, we talk to China and they talk to us. We don't always agree, but we can avoid problems that way. And we know what they're doing and thinking. And uh, But back then, China was a big mystery. Nixon opened up China diplomatically, but back then it was this weird mystery. And so they would send priests over to China to try to convert these communistic um, uh, Asian people into Christians, which is ridiculous when you think about it. It's the height of kind of white supremacy ideology to try to convert people to your religion that is so alien to the culture. And um, I, I actually went to the to the extent of having a Marinol priest come to our house to give my parents a pep talk about why I should become a Marinol missionary, which meant you had to go to the seminary and all that. But my parents were against it. They they thought I should go to a regular high school first. Actually, they sent me to a Catholic high school, Jesuit high school, which was a problem too, although it was a good education. But um, they said, my mother said, go to, a, go to high school, meet some girls, date girls, and then if you still want to be a priest, fine. And in a way, that was good advice. But of course, the first time I met a girl, I no longer wanted to be a priest, you know. <laughs> I had great trouble shaking Catholicism. It was a terrible struggle for me because I was deeply uh, affected by it. And um, so I, I think, well, you know, it makes perfect sense that I would feel this affinity for this film, which is about the absurdity of <clears throat> white Christians over in China in the 30s trying to convert people who don't even know what they're talking about. And the scene the scene that made me understand John Ford when I was first starting to get into Ford, I loved Ford Apache. That was a great film that really turned me on to Ford, partly because I wanted to see a film for years. I was a Western fan. I wanted to see a film in which the Indians won because the Indians were always getting beaten. And as a kid, I was for the underdog. And I kept thinking, I want to see the Indians win. Why do they always lose? I didn't understand this at all. And then finally, I saw one on TV, and I got so excited. It may have been Fort Apache, but in in um, when I was in college, I was 19, I saw Fort Apache. And not only do they win, uh, it's based loosely on the Custer massacre, but they're the good guys. They're the heroes of the film. And I thought, wow, this, this is the kind of film I love. It just turns American ideology in its head, and it's just my kind of thing. Uh, but then I didn't totally understand Ford's, you know, kind of perverse worldview until I saw Seven Women. The scene that got me, and I reproduce, I do a lot of frame enlargements in the new edition of of the John Ford book that we're talking about. And I, I made frame enlargements. Eddie Albert is this lay missionary who's giving this uh, sermon to a bunch of Chinese boys in his classroom, and he's ranting and raving in english and they don't they don't know english it's totally ridiculous and they're all looking at him like what 
what is this crazy guy doing? And Ford cuts to a couple of shots, really big close-ups of Chinese boys trying to understand it. And there's one great close-up of a kid, and it fills the Panavision screen pretty much. It's really tight. And he's looking at him. He's kind of struggling to understand him. And it's absurdist. It's the theater of the absurd. And, and I, that, at that moment, I understood John Ford's sense of humor. He finds humor in this cultural clash that this is so absurd. And so people who said, you know, at the preview, this film is anti-religion, they, they missed the point. Ford was not anti-religion. He was anti-religious hypocrisy and anti-cruelty masquerading itself as religion. He was he was all for people behaving like good Christians if they actually were good Christians like the doctor, but she's an atheist. It doesn't matter because she sacrifices herself. Sacrifice is a big theme in Ford's films. That's something that's really alien to our culture right now. How many people do you know who would sacrifice their lives for other people in America? I don't, I don't think I would, and I don't think very many Americans would. But back in the day, people would go to war in World War II and sacrifice their lives for their country and other, you know, uh, humankind, et cetera. And Ford, Ford makes films about sacrifice. They were expendable. I interviewed John Bulkley, who the film was modeled on. I mean, he's the main character. Uh, Admiral Bulkley was the inspiration. The, the main guy, Bulkley, won the Medal of Honor for rescuing MacArthur from the Philippines, for example, and that, that's shown in the film. But he said to me, he said, you know, I'm, I was very bitter about the whole thing because I took 111 men over there to the Philippines and I came back with nine. And he said there was no point in trying to defend the Philippines. We couldn't defend it. You know, the only way to do it would have been with a massive number of men and tremendous number of ships. We didn't have the resources at that point, but said we had to put up a defense to show the Asian world that we were fighting the Japanese, but it was stupid. He said, and here's a guy who lost most of his men, and he didn't want to accept the Medal of Honor because he had lost most of his men, and they ordered him to take it for PR reasons. And I also interviewed General Jimmy Doolittle, who led the raid on Tokyo in 1942. And he lost most, you know, a lot of his men were killed in that raid or later. And um, you know, later, actually, they when they had to crash into China, um, he lost most of his men. And he was given the Medal of Honor, and he did the same thing. He said, I don't want this medal because I lost most of my men. And they ordered him to go to the White House and get it from Roosevelt. Um, so those are true heroes that Ford... Ford filmed the Doolittle uh, uh, takeoff of the planes, for example. Um, but um, he's he's about sacrifice. And so the doctor sacrifices herself. It's a very Fordian film. It's The themes of the film are very much in line with Ford's entire body of work. And also, he, um, he was kind of considered a masculine director. I mean, a director of men. But there are many terrific women in his body of work, a lot of strong women and fascinating women characters and there's a whole book on john ford's women now that's a pretty good book and i'm glad somebody finally wrote that so i think my conflict over religion is echoed in this film and also even the setting of it no wonder i like this film my final question for you joe mcbride is uh where can people find your book and i'll include a link too by the way oh yeah uh well amazon or university press of kentucky website um it's John Ford by Joe, Joseph McBride and Michael Wilmington, the late Michael Wilmington. Let's give him a 
round of applause. Um, wish you were here to to see it, but uh, it, it's it has its youthful vigor intact. I tried not to rewrite it too much, you know, when I did a new version, I corrected a few things or whatever, but um, kept the youthful passion that we had. And uh, but you can get it through Amazon, and there's a Kindle Kindle edition too if you want that. Listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to shoot us an email at independentcareerstudios at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please write a review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or YouTube. We'd love to hear your feedback. Behind the Flicks was created by myself and Ariana. I wrote and edited this episode. My name is Aaron Gentile. This has been Independent Career Studios production. Mm -hmm.